this, the third episode of History Zine, another instalment in the War of the Spanish Succession, including the long-awaited entry of the Allies into the war, more of Eugene in northern Italy, and a little excursion into the world of 18th century banking. But first, another podcast review. This week I want to bring to your attention a podcast called Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Now this podcast is perhaps a little different from the usual history podcast. Dan Carlin doesn't really attempt to tell stories, but picks out bits of history and examines what he finds interesting, intriguing or fascinating about the event. He's fascinated by why things happened the way they did, and often chooses an unusual angle to shed new light upon events of the past, or to throw them under brighter illumination so that we might understand them better. Nine out of ten times, this approach is absolutely entrancing. It makes the subject vital and encourages us to have a very personal interaction with history. Having said this, my first exposure to the podcast was quite a disappointing one. My introduction to hardcore history was one called The X-History Files, and it talked about what we know of as pseudo-history. I bristled like a porcupine when I began to listen to this. It seemed like sensationalism just for the sake of inciting a reaction. There's, there's a sort of lack of sincerity there. My first reaction was that history is fascinating enough without someone messing about with notions of Atlantis or pyramids with magical properties. But, I don't know. I think I may have overreacted against it at the time, seeing it in isolation without being previously exposed to Dan's playfulness with history. I still consider it one of the weaker shows, but it doesn't raise my hackles the way it did. Further shows I found more and more delightful. Scars of the Great War looks at one of the subjects that absolutely everyone should have some knowledge of. This is the First World War, and it has so many resonances, even today. And as Dan points out, we're still working out the issues of the First World War, and a knowledge of what happened then, and how it happened, can help us to understand the tensions of today's world. Now, another show, the What Ifs of 1066. Now, this show covers events of a long time ago, and the direct relevance to today's world is a little more remote than that of the Great War. But it does wonderfully illustrate that finely balanced moment when a single event can entirely change the course of history. This isn't, of course, an absolutely proven concept. It's quite possible that there are forces of historical change that mean we will always end up at the same point, given a long enough time period. But certainly in the short term, hundreds rather than thousands of years, a single event can radically change the face of history. I could talk about each of the podcasts in the same way. Every one provokes thought and discussion, and it's one of those podcasts which always gives me a little shiver of delight when I see a new show available. The only real criticism I have of this podcast is that there just aren't enough of them. I want lots of them, and I want them now. And now a linguistic history trivia bit. Like the catchy title? I was, um, well, still am actually, going to talk about the phrase Good night, sleep tight, mind the bait bugs don't bite. A common enough phrase here in England. And I thought I actually knew 
the provenance of this phrase. Gullible chap that I am, I, I usually believe the tourist guides when I'm being shown round great houses. And so the common explanation is when they, usually when they pull out these truckle beds, you know, they're underneath the main beds there. Truckle beds slide underneath the big bed and they're often where the servant will sleep if the servant's sleeping next to their master or mistress. And they'll be fairly basic affairs and it'll be a, a wooden rectangle, obviously, and across it will be ropes. And your body weight is supported by the ropes that go into the wood on each side. Now, of course, as you're laying on these ropes, it makes them looser and they sag. And so, to get a nice firm support, you would just tighten it up. And so, this is where tourist guys usually tell us uh, the phrase comes from. It's sleep tight, it's just tightening up these ropes. Quite plausible. Uh, I had a look round the net and consensus of opinion seems to be it's, it's a more recent phrase than that. And what it's more likely to mean is... Uh, sleep tight as in sleep soundly. So apparently that's where it comes from. It's not as exciting or interesting as the rope bed explanation. And I still don't know where the bed bugs come into it. Because the bed bugs are going to bite whatever you do. Oh, by the way, a little tip here about bed bugs. You know, you may have heard about people turning the bed down or airing the room. Well, apparently that's because all these bugs love heat. That's why they get excited when you're in there and they'll start biting you. So during the day, so you don't encourage them to start running about and breeding and stuff, you pull back the covers to leave the mattress exposed and probably open the windows as well. This will probably reduce the temperature enough so that the bed bugs at least remain dormant for a little while. So that's good night, sleep tight, mind the bed bugs don't bite. And this is our special feature. The War of the Spanish Succession, Part 3. Now, last time, we left Prince Eugène of Savoy up in the north of Italy, facing off against the French forces there. It had taken simply an age to assemble the imperial troops, so the French had plenty of time to reinforce there in north Italy, and they were actually blocking the passes over the Alps. So Eugène is trying to get over the Alps there into northern Italy, you know, to to uh, secure the Milanese possessions. But there are strong, strong forces waiting there at what was thought to be the only way across the Alps. Well, not the only way across. The only way you could take an army across the Alps. You know, I know we're talking about way back 1701 here, but they've still got horses and cannons and they've got baggage carts and they've, they've got to get all these over the mountains. So they can't take any old little track. So the French general Catinat is waiting there for Eugène on the other side of the Alps. Now Eugène, as always, full of surprises, manages to take a route that no one would expect him to take. A route that was thought impossible. Yet he got his men over the Alps and onto the other side and took Catinat by surprise. He immediately pulled all his forces back, waiting for Eugène to swing west. Yet again, Eugène is full of surprises. Eugène goes south, and so Catinat's there trying to block him, uh, waiting for what he's going to do next. And as he's doing this, he's stringing his forces out all along a, a sort of line between Eugène and the west of Italy. And the further Eugène goes south, the more strung out Catinat's forces become. 
Of course, this was exactly what Eugene had intended, and he gets as far as Carpi and then swings west there, with fierce consequences. Now, Catanat is particularly shaken now. He's being continually outthought and outfought. He pulls his troops back, and Eugene begins to go north. Now, we can see now how this happened, and I think you can't really blame Catanat. Eugene is a remarkable general and can demand things from his soldiers that no other general could at that time. However, Louis XIV, waiting back there in Paris, was absolutely livid. I mean, it's not so long ago that it, it all looked over and done with. There's Eugene on the wrong side of the Alps. There's some very strong French forces waiting there, northern Italy, at the only serious passage through the Alps. And somehow, it's, it's all swung round. Eugene has come round. He's boxed in Catinat. He's inflicted some serious casualties on Catinat. And so, none of this is going to plan. Louis then replaces Catinat with someone who was actually an inferior commander, but he was quite a favourite at court. This is Villeroy, and he has orders to attack Eugène and drive the imperial forces out of Italy. Villeroy arrives and knows he has to attack at whatever cost. Villeroy leads the French forces back east, over the Oglio, and hard on the heels of the imperial army. Eugène then digs himself and his forces in at a fortress at Chiari. Villeroy attacks, and the attack is an absolute disaster. He lost 2,000 men and 200 officers. Imperial losses are given to us at being only 36 dead and 81 wounded. Now, I know the numbers are always going to favour you in a defensive position, but that's just a bizarre differential. The French are thrown back here, and Eugène always want to capitalise on an advantageous situation harasses the French with his cavalry, driving them back across the Oglio and then occupying most of the Duchy of Mantua before going into winter quarters. Now, all armies used to go into winter quarters at these times. If you think of the kind of roads you'd have back in 1700 and the sort of thing that the winter weather would do to those roads and you realise just why they went into winter quarters... He must have been feeling really good as well. He completely turned the situation round. And even though the French were numerically superior and his, their troops in a lot better condition than his, he had them running scared. He had them terrified of him. And having the French on the ropes in this way had a great impression upon some of the other Italian states and a lot that were wavering to decide which side they were going to be on decided to come down on the side of Eugène and the imperial forces. Eugène's action also gave great heart to England and Holland, who were still desperately hoping to avoid war somehow. However, Louis's not making it easy for them. He knows that one of the things that England and the Dutch Republic fear most is the unification of the French and Spanish crowns. So what does dear Louis do next, despite all previous assurances that this wasn't going to happen, Louis formally reinstated his grandson's right to the French throne. Now, this doesn't exactly make the two countries as one, 
but it leads to that possibility of being able to happen in the future. There's a flurry of politicking going on in Europe at the moment. The Earl of Marlborough has been sent out from England. He's the John Churchill we mentioned in the last episode. He was sent to negotiate with the European heads of state, including Louis, obviously, in a last-ditch attempt to avoid war and also to make sure that England had some allies in case of war. Marlborough was obviously hoping that Eugene's successors would have a strong influence upon the mind of Louis. He wrote in a letter to London on August 12, 1701, We are here in very great expectation that the French will be reasonable, or otherwise according to what will happen there. There being, of course, Italy, and what will happen is obviously the further success of Eugène. As you may have guessed, Louis was completely intractable. And on September the 7th, the Treaty of the Grand Alliance was signed, pledging England, the Dutch Republic and the Empire to impose their terms upon France by force if peaceful means failed. So, what were these terms? There was an agreement that Philip V could keep the throne of Spain and American possessions, provided the crowns of France and Spain would never be united and the assignment of the territories in the Spanish Netherlands, Italy and the Mediterranean to the Austrian Archduke. England and the Dutch Republic to monopolise Spanish colonial trade. Mm, thinking about it, I can see a case for the first two, but why should England and the Dutch Republic get Spanish trade? And how can Spain survive without the colonial trade? I think we'd have to see the wording on that to see exactly what they meant there. If anybody has a copy of that document, I'd love to take a look at it. I haven't come across it yet. Or if I have, I certainly can't remember it. Right, to gain these terms, each signatory agreed to committing a certain number of forces to the struggle with France. The Empire promised 82,000, the Dutch 100,000, and the English 40,000. Note, with the English, that's... 40,000 troops they're committing, but they're not 40,000 English soldiers. The English committed to using 18,000 soldiers, and they would raise the rest from foreign mercenaries. It was financially quite secure. And this method of hiring foreign soldiers to do England's fighting, or of providing subsidies to other armies, was to become a staple of the English military machine. In fact, here, England and the Dutch Republic both used their money to sway many of the other previously neutral countries with heavy financial subsidies. This helped to sway Hanover, the Palatinate, Munster, Hesse-Kassel and Baden. The Elector of Brandenburg committed 10,000 men to the Allied cause, provided that he was recognised as King in Prussia by the Emperor and the Danes also guaranteed 6,000 men to the Emperor in northern Italy. There were another two German states that would have been very useful on the Allied side, but unfortunately these chose to side with France. This was Bavaria and Cologne, both in strategically important positions. There's an interesting side point here that I've touched upon only moments ago. This is the strong financial position that England and the Dutch Republic were in at the time. And just how important that was, and how important it came to be over the next hundred years. In fact, in the case of England, over the next three hundred years. And 
most of the reason for this solid position is down to banking at that time. But of course, both countries are strong trading nations, and both countries have a reasonably active manufacturing base. But it's banking that are performing the wonders for them at this time. And what is banking? Well, banking is basically the ability to spend the same amount of money many times over. Or, as it's more usually known, credit. So I'll talk a little bit about banking here and just why it's so important to them. Okay, the earliest of our modern banks you'll find in the Italian cities, really, such as Florence. And you'll find them there in Renaissance times, which is quite a bit before this. Now, these techniques that you find in the Italian cities were adapted wonderfully by the United Provinces. And Amsterdam, in particular, became a very strong and very important financial centre. The merchants in the United Provinces were also the government. And they determined that the government should be run on sound commercial lines, just as a business should be. For this reason, they were less concerned about the politics or religion of these institutions to which they lent money, but more with their ability to repay and their past record of repayments. There was enough money sloshing around from these transactions that they were even able to extend loans to foreign governments, and their judgment of the worthiness of a government to repay the loans became a really useful indicator of the strength of that country at the time. Now, ultimately, by the late 18th, 19th centuries, this strength actually became a weakness for the United Provinces, as it diverted their attentions away from being a strong manufacturing economy into being a rentier economy. In the 19th century, when the Industrial Revolution really took off, those countries, such as Britain, who had invested heavily in manufacturing, grew in power and prosperity much more than such as the United Provinces. For now, though, in the late 17th and early 18th centuries, the United Provinces were financially very strong, and countries such as England, which had a good, solid guaranteed revenue and a good record of repayment were in a strong position to raise loans, primarily from the United Provinces. But their sound financial position made it possible to borrow at quite low rates of interest from almost anywhere. The Bank of England was formed in 1694, primarily to manage the war debt, and has remained a part of the English government until very recently. Even now, the government has some degree of control over the Bank of England. The collection of taxes were done by the government rather than by tax farmers, such as in France. This cuts down the amount of corruption in the system and made it possible to forecast, with a degree of accuracy, what revenues were due in any particular year. This makes it just so easy to show any financier how much would be available to service a loan. And this, with a solid record of past repayments, makes it possible for the English government to raise large amounts of cash at times of crisis, such as a war, for instance. And you even get a knock-on from this. I mean, it, it seems like a bad thing having to borrow money, but you borrow that money, you spend it on war materials such as ships, guns, clothing, etc. And of course, this stimulates the economy. Somebody has to make all these things, and you're ploughing all that money into the economy. So the people making these things, they're earning their wages, they're spending the money, and 
you're getting more revenue from the taxes on that. In fact, I'll give you some figures here from Paul Kennedy's wonderful book, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers. Okay, first figure is from the time between 1688 and 1697. Right, England's total expenditure between 1688 and 1697 was just over £49 million. was nearly £33 million. The remainder, that's about £16.5 million, that's raised by loans. So that's £49 million expenditure, and that's made up of £16.5 million loans and £33 million income. So, between 1702 and 1713, this is the time of the actual war of the Spanish succession, England's total expenditure was now £93.5 million, and its total income was just over £64 million. The shortfall here made up by loans was £29.5 million. Now, that's a lot of borrowing there, but look how much the income has gone up at the same time. I think that gives you some idea of how much the economy is stimulated there. The income's gone from £33 million up to £64 million. And we're talking about the time where there's pretty close to being zero inflation. So that jump in income is massive. So, okay, the jump in expenditure is big. The jump in borrowing is big. But if you look at the two sets of figures, you can see the proportion of expenditure in loans is about the same In both sets of figures, the proportion is about 32%. So it's a lot of debt, but it's steady, it's manageable. And the interest rates are low. So England is finding this to be not a great problem. And this financial security is one of the most important factors in England's rise to power over the next 300 years. Despite England's small size and lack of manpower, this financial strength and stability allows England to finance immense wars and exert a huge amount of influence over the European continent, much to the chagrin of one Napoleon Bonaparte just about a 100 years later. Right, let's get back to Italy, where Prince Eugène has gone into winter quarters. He's still hoping to engage in some action over the winter months to give more heart to his allies and those still deciding which allegiance will serve them best. He has, unfortunately, run into a problem of supply caused by an edict from the Pope, Pope Clement XI, who had just begun his reign in 1700 and had thrown his allegiance behind the Bourbon king. I suppose not surprising, really, with Louis holding himself up as the champion of Catholicism. And... Clement had instructed his flock to deny foodstuffs to the Allies. And so Eugène was struggling with supplies of everything needed to keep an army in the field. This is grain, ammunition, money. And his repeated demands to the Emperor for more of all these items were met with a resounding silence. The finances of the Empire were in dire straits indeed. So, looking for a victory to give heart to his men and followers, Eugène decided to attack Cremona. This was no easy task given his scant resources and the strong fortifications of Cremona. But he discovered the existence of a disused and unguarded canal which entered the city and he used this to smuggle 4,000 troops into the city. They attacked from inside, opened the gates for his cavalry and his cavalry came in and joined the attack. All going well so far, but the French defended really stoutly and they held the citadel in the centre of the city 
and they held it long enough to be reinforced. Now Eugene took the decision to withdraw, after of course inflicting very heavy casualties on the French, and he took a lot of prisoners as well, including the commander Villeroy. This attack of course shook the French and they retreated even further to a more secure position. This should have been good news for Eugene, as the French retreating opened up his supply lines to the Tyrol again, and he taken the French commander, but unfortunately Villeroy was replaced by a much more able commander, this new commander being Marshal Vendôme. Although Cremona was not an outright success, it was celebrated as such back in England, and may have helped England to eventually get around to formally declaring war upon France on May the 15th, 1702. The Imperial forces had stood alone for a whole year, but now the Allies had entered the fray and so may be able to divert some of the power of the French war machine away from Eugene. William of Orange had recently died, and Louis must have been hoping that this, combined with the desire of the Tory party for peace, might keep England out of the war. The new Queen, however, Queen Anne, had vowed to keep up the struggle which William had begun and for all her faults she was stubborn and immovable once she had set her mind upon a course. This is in itself a fault in some circumstances, but here it was what was required to set against the resistance of the Tories. Queen Anne had appointed John Churchill, Earl of Marlborough, later to be Duke of Marlborough, as the leader of the Allies, and this was accepted, but not without much bickering, grumbling and argument from the many armies concerned. I'll talk about that more next time. For now, let's have another look at our man of action in Italy. Prince Eugène is somehow managing to hold his tattered army together. He's got a mere 28,000 men and he's facing Vendôme's 80,000. He's repeatedly asking for supplies and reinforcement and receiving neither. He instigated a raid at Rivalta to try and capture Vendôme, as he had done with Villeroy but this raid was bungled and came to naught. This shook Vendôme, but instead of retreating, as Villeroy had done, he attacked a detachment of Eugène's forces near the Crostolo and inflicted a heavy defeat. Eugène rushed to check the route and turned his forces to attack at Luzzaro, south of the Po. The battle was fierce indeed and there was much slaughter. The outcome was indecisive, but it gave Vendôme much pause for thought, and he didn't attack Eugene again that year. So I suppose even though the outcome was decisive, it, yet again it's hailed as a victory from Eugene, or at least it is in England. Now, during these podcasts, we're going to talk a lot about the relationship between Eugene and Marlborough. It's often considered a really key factor in the successful cooperation between the rest of the Allies and the Imperial forces. For this reason, I'd like to read you the opening correspondence which took place between these two men at this point. So, here's a letter from Marlborough, dated September the 4th, 1702. Sir, for a long time I have wanted to do myself the honour of writing to your highness. But the hope of being able to send you some good news from here constantly restrained me. However, the victory which your highness has just won over the enemy gives me now an excellent opportunity of congratulating you upon it, as indeed I do, from the bottom of my heart. 
It is a successor to the great actions in which your Highness has participated since arriving in Italy, and which have been so valuable to the common cause. We feel the same sense of relief and deliverance as your Highness in view of the superiority in numbers of the enemy. Your Highness's part in this encounter cannot be adequately praised, but I beg you to believe that amongst all your admirers there is none more happy or more full of respect for your Highness than I am. Sir, etc. Marlborough. Eugene replied on October the 3rd, 1702. My Lord, I feel the more deeply honoured by your Excellency's letter of yesterday, assuring me that you interest yourself in the affairs of this country, since I have long desired to become acquainted with a man who fills with such dignity the command of an army only accustomed to obey one of the greatest kings in the world. I do not doubt that the campaign will end in your quarter, as fortunately as it has begun. As for the affairs of this country, the superiority of the enemy prevents advantage being taken of the recent action. It is to be hoped that the situation will change, and this army will soon be placed in a state to act offensively. I await with impatience news from the land where you are, being interested in glory above all men. From your Excellency's very humble and obedient servant, Eugène de Savoy. And so we see the opening comments of a military partnership unparalleled in history. Marlborough and Eugène, two of the greatest commanders of the age, and possibly of all time. Eugène has been very much at the forefront of our story up until now, but hopefully next time we'll see a little more of Marlborough. So until next time, bye for now.